Okay, this is Das Unbehagen in Del Kultur, or Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. Um, section 2. In my future of an illusion, in 1927, I was concerned much less with the deepest sources of the religious feeling than with what the common man understands by his religion, with the system of doctrines and promises, which on the one hand explains to him the riddles of this world with enviable completeness, and on the other assures him that a careful providence will watch over his life and will compensate him in a future existence for any frustrations he suffers here. The common man cannot imagine this providence otherwise than in the figure of an enormously exalted father. Only such a being can understand the needs of the children of men and be softened by their prayers and placated by the signs of their remorse. The whole thing is so patently infantile, so foreign to reality, that to anyone with a friendly attitude to humanity it is painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never be able to rise above this view of life. It is still more humiliating to discover how large a number of people living today who cannot but see that this religion is not tenable, nevertheless try to defend it piece by piece in a series of pitiful rearguard actions. One would like to mix among the ranks of the believers in order to meet these philosophers who think they can rescue the god of religion by replacing him by an impersonal, shadowy, and abstract principle, and to address them with the warning words, Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord thy God in vain. And if some of the great men of the past acted in the same way, no appeal can be made to their example. We know why they were obliged to. Let us return to the common man and to his religion, the only religion which ought to bear that name. The first thing that we think of is the well-known saying of, our, of one of our great poets and thinkers concerning the relation of religion to art and science. The translation is, He who possesses science and art also has religion, but he who possesses neither of those two, let him have religion. Goethe. This saying, on the one hand, draws an antithesis between religion and the two highest achievements of man, and on the other, man, and on the other asserts that, as regards their value in life, those achievements and religion can represent or replace each other. If we also set out to deprive the common man, who has neither science nor art, of his religion, we shall clearly not have the poet's authority on our side. We will choose a particular path to bring us nearer an appreciation of his words. Life as we find it is too hard for us. It brings us too many pains, disappointments, and impossible tasks. In order to bear it, we cannot dispense with palliative measures. We cannot do without auxiliary constructions, as Theodore Fontaine tells us. There are perhaps three such measures— powerful deflections, which cause us to make light of our misery, substitutive satisfactions, which diminish it, 
and intoxicating substances which make us insensitive to it. Something of the kind is indispensable. Voltaire has deflections in mind when he ends Candide with the advice to cultivate one's garden, and scientific activity is a deflection of this kind, too. The substitute of satisfactions, as offered by art, are illusions in contrast with reality, but they are nonetheless psychically effective, thanks to the role which fantasy has assumed in mental life. The intoxicating substances influence our body and alter its chemistry. It is no simple matter to see where religion has its place in this series. We must look further afield. The question of the purpose of human life has been raised countless times. It has never yet received a satisfactory answer, and perhaps does not admit of one. Some of those who have asked have added that if it should turn out that life has no purpose, it would lose all value for them. But this threat alters nothing. It looks, on the contrary, as though one had a right to dismiss the question, for it seems to derive from the human presumptuousness, many other manifestations of which are already familiar to us. Nobody talks about the purpose of life of animals, unless perhaps it may be supposed to lie in being of service to man. But this view is not tenable either, for there are many animals of which man can make nothing, except to describe, classify, and study them, and innumerable species of animals have escaped even this use, since they existed and became extinct before man set eyes on them. Once again, only religion can answer the question of the purpose of life. One can hardly be wrong in concluding that the idea of life having a purpose stands and falls within the religious system. We will therefore turn to the less ambitious question of what men themselves show by their behavior to be the purpose and intention of their lives. What do they demand of life and wish to achieve in it? The answer to this can hardly be in doubt. They strive after happiness. They want to become happy and to remain so. This endeavor has two sides, a positive and a negative aim. It aims on the one hand at an absence of pain and unpleasure, and on the other at the experiencing of strong feelings of pleasure. In its narrower sense, the word happiness only relates to the last. In conformity with this dichotomy in his aims, man's activity develops in two directions, according as it seeks to realize, in the main or even the exclusively the one or the other of these aims. As we see, what decides the purpose of life is simply the program of the pleasure principle. This principle dominates the operation of the mental apparatus from the start. There can be no doubt about its eff efficacy, and yet its program is at loggerheads with the whole world, with the macrocosm as much as with the microcosm. There's no possibility at all of its being carried through. All the regulations of the universe run counter to it. One feels inclined to say that the intention that man should be happy is not included in the plan of creation. What we call happiness in the strictest sense comes from the preferably sudden satisfaction of needs, which have been dammed up to a high degree, and it is from nature, and it is from its nature only possible as an episodic phenomenon. When any situation that is desired by the pleasure principle is prolonged, it only produces a feeling of mild contentment. We are so made that we can de derive intense enjoyment only from a contrast and very little from a state of things. 
Thus, our possibilities of happiness are already restricted by our constitution. Unhappiness is much less difficult to experience. We are threatened with suffering from three directions, from our own body, which is doomed to decay and dissolution and which cannot even do without pain and anxiety as warning signals, from the external world, which may rage against us with overwhelming and merciless forces of destruction, and finally, from our relations to other men. The suffering which comes from this last source is perhaps more painful to us than any other. We tend to regard it as a kind of gratuitous addition, although it cannot be any less fatefully inevitable than the suffering which comes from elsewhere. It is no wonder if, under the pressure of these possibilities of suffering, men are accustomed to moderate their claims to happiness, just as the pleasure principle itself, indeed, under the influence of the external world, changed into the more modest reality principle. If a man thinks himself happy merely to have escaped unhappiness or to have sur survived his suffering, and if, in general, ta the task of avoiding suffering pushes that of obtaining pleasure into the background, reflection shows that the accomplishment of this task can be attempted along very different paths. And all these paths have been recommended by the various schools of worldly wisdom and put into practice by men. An unrestricted satisfaction of every need presents itself as the most enticing method of conducting one's life, but it means putting enjoyment before caution and soon brings its own punishment. The other methods in which avoidance of unpleasure is the main purpose are differentiated according to the source of unpleasure to which their attention is chiefly turned. Some of these methods are extreme and some moderate, some are one-sided, and some attack the problem simultaneously at several points. Against the suffering which may come upon one from human relationships, the readiest safeguard is voluntary isolation, keeping oneself aloof from other people. The happiness which can be achieved along this path is, as we see, the happiness of quietness. Against the dreaded external world, one can only defend oneself by some kind of turning away from it if one intends to solve the task by oneself. There is indeed another and better path, that of becoming a member of the human community, and with the help of a technique guided by science, going over to the attack against nature and subjecting her to the human will. Then one is working with all for the good of all. But the most interesting methods of averting suffering are those which seek to influence our own organism. In the last analysis, all suffering is nothing else than sensation. It only exists insofar as we feel it, and we only feel it in consequence of certain ways in which our organism is regulated. The crudest, but also the most effective among these methods of influence is the chemical one, intoxication. I do not think that anyone completely understands its mechanism, but it is a fact that there are foreign substances which, when present in the blood or tissues, directly causes pleasurable sensations, and they also so alter the conditions governing our, sen governing our sensibility that we become incapable of receiving unpleasurable impulses. The two effects not only occur simultaneously, but seem to be intimately bound up with each other. But there must be substances in the chemistry of our own bodies which have similar effects, for we know at least one pathological state, mania, in which a condition similar to intoxication arises without the administration of any intoxicating drug. 
Besides this, our normal mental life exhibits oscillations between a comparatively easy liberation of pleasure and a comparatively difficult one, parallel with which there goes diminished, a diminished or an increased receptivity to unpleasure. It is greatly to be regretted that this toxic side of mental processes has so far escaped scientific examination. The service rendered by intoxicating media and the struggle for happiness and in keeping misery at a distance is so highly prized as a benefit that individuals and peoples alike have given them an established place in the economics of their libido. We owe to such media not merely the immediate yield of pleasure, but also a greatly desired degree of independence from the external world. For one knows that, with the help of this drowner of cares, one could any time withdraw from the pressure of reality and find refuge in a world of one's own with better conditions of sensibility. As is well known, it is precisely this property of intoxicants which also determines their danger and their injuriousness. They are responsible, in certain circumstances, for the useless waste of a large quota of energy which might have been employed for the improvement of the human lot. The complicated structure of our mental apparatus admits, however, of a whole number of other influences. Just as a satisfaction of instinct spells happiness for us, so severe suffering is caused, if, is caused us if the external world lets us starve, if it refuses to state our needs. One may therefore hope to be freed from a part of one's sufferings by influencing the instinctual impulses. This type of defense against suffering is no longer brought to bear on the sensory apparatus. It seeks to master the internal sources of our needs. The extreme form of this is brought about by killing off these instincts, as is prescribed by the worldly wisdom of the East and practiced by yoga. If it succeeds, then the subject has, has it is true, given up all other activities as well. He has sacrificed his life, and by another path, he has once more only achieved the happiness of quietness. We follow the same path when our aims are less extreme and we merely attempt to control our instinctual life. In that case, the controlling elements are the higher psych psychical agencies which have subjected themselves to the reality principle. Here, the aim of satisfaction is not by any means relinquished, but a certain amount of projection against suffering is secured in that non-satisfaction is not so painfully felt in the case of instinct kept in dependence as in the case of uninhibited ones. As against this, there is an undeniable diminution of, in the potentialities of enjoyment. The feeling of happiness derived from the satisfaction of a wild instinctual impulse untamed by the ego is incomparably more intense than that derived from sating an instinct that has been tamed. The irresistibility of perverse instincts and perhaps the attraction in general of forbidden things, finds an economic explanation here. Another technique for fending off suffering is the employment of the displacements of libido, which our mental apparatus permits of, and through which its function gains so much in flexibility. The task here is that of shifting the instinctual aims in such a way that they cannot come up against frustration from the external world. In this, sublimation of the instincts lends its assistance. One gains the most if one can sufficiently heighten the yield of pleasure from the sources of psychical and intellectual work. When that is so, fate can do little against one. 
A satisfaction of this kind, such as an artist's joy in creating, in giving his fantasies body, or a scientist's in solving problems or discovering truth, has a special quality which we shall certainly one day be able to characterize in metapsychological terms. At present, we can only say figuratively that such satisfactions seem finer and higher. But their intensity is mild as compared with that derived from the sating of crude and primary instinctual impulses. It does not convulse our physical being. And the weak point of this method is that it is not applicable generally. It is accessible to only a few people. It presupposes the possession of special dispositions and gifts which are far from being common to any practical degree. And even to the few who do possess them, this method cannot give complete protection from suffering. It creates no impenetrable armor against the arrows of fortune, and it habitually fails when the source of suffering is a person's own body. There's a really long footnote here about that. Here's the footnote. When there is no special disposition in a person which imperatively prescribes what direction his interest in life shall take, the ordinary professional work that is open to everyone can play the part assigned it by Voltaire's wise advice. It is not possible within the limits of a short survey to discuss adequately the significance of work for the economics of the libido. No other technique for the conduct of life attaches the individual so firmly to reality as laying emphasis on work. For his work, at least, gives him a secure place in a portion of reality, in the human community. The possibility it offers of displacing a large amount of libidinal components, whether narcissistic, aggressive, or even erotic, onto professional work and onto the human relations connected with it, lends a value by no means second to what it enjoys as something indispensable to the preservation and justification of existence in society. Professional activity is a source of special satisfaction if it is a freely chosen one, if, that is to say, by means of sublimation it makes possible the use of existing inclinations, of persisting or constitutionally reinforcing, reinforced instinctual impulses. And yet, as a path to happiness, work is not highly prized by men. They do not strive after it as they do other possibilities of satisfaction. The great majority of people only work under the stress of necessity, and this natural human aversion to work raises most difficult social problems. End of footnote. While this procedure already clearly shows an intention of making oneself independent of the external world by seeking satisfaction in internal psychical processes, the next procedure brings out these features yet more strongly. In it, the connection with reality is still further loosened. Satisfaction is obtained from illusions which are recognized as such without the discrepancy between them and reality being allowed to interfere with enjoyment. The region from which these illusions arise is the life of the imagination. At the time when the development of the sense of reality took place, this region was expressly exempted from the demands of reality testing and was set apart for the purpose of fulfilling wishes which were difficult to carry out. At the head of these satisfactions through fantasy stands the enjoyment of works of art, an enjoyment which, by the agency of the artist, is made accessible even to those who are not themselves creative. People who are receptive to the influence of art cannot set too high a value on it as a source of pleasure and consolation in life. Nevertheless, the mild narcosis induced in us by art can do, more, can do no more than bring about a transient withdrawal from the pressure of vital needs, 
and it is not strong enough to make us, make us forget real misery. Another procedure operates more energetically and more thoroughly. It regards reality as the sole enemy and as the source of all suffering with which it is impossible to live, so that one must break off all relations with it if one is to be in any way happy. The hermit turns his back on the world and will have no truck with it. But one can do more than that. One can try to recreate the world, to build up in its stead another world in which its most unbearable features are eliminated and replaced by others that are in conformity with one's own wishes. But whoever, in desperate defiance, sets out upon this path to happiness will, as a rule, attain nothing. Reality is too strong for him. He becomes a madman, for who the most who for the most part finds no one to help him in carrying through his delusion. It is asserted, however, that each one of us behaves in some one respect like a paranoiac, corrects some aspect of the world which is unbearable to him by the construction of a wish, and introduces this delusion into reality. A special importance attaches to the case in which this attempt to procure a certainty of happiness and a protection against suffering through a delusional remolding of reality is made by a considerable number of people in common. The religions of mankind must be classed among the mass delusions of this kind. No one, needless to say, who shares a delusion ever recognizes it as such. I do not think that I have made a complete enumeration of these methods by which men strive to gain happiness and keep suffering away. And I know, too, that the material might have been differently arranged. One procedure I have not yet mentioned, not because I have forgotten it, but because it will concern us later in another connection. And how could one possibly forget, of all others, this technique in the art of living? It is conspicuous for a most remarkable combination of characteristic features. It, too, aims, of course, at making the subject independent of fate, as it is best to call it, and to that end, it locates satisfaction in internal mental processes, making use, in so doing, of the displaceability of the libido, of which we have already spoken. But it does not turn away from the external world. On the contrary, it clings to the objects belonging to that world and obtains happiness from an emotional relationship to them. Nor is it content to aim at an avoidance of unpleasure, a goal, as we might call it, of weary resignation. It passes this by without heed and holds fast to the original passionate striving for a positive fulfillment of happiness. And perhaps it does, in fact, come nearer to this goal than any other method. I am, of course, speaking of the way of life, which makes love the center of everything, which looks for all satisfaction in loving and being loved. A psychical attitude of this sort comes naturally enough to all of us, one of the forms in which love manifests itself, sexual love, has given us our most intense experience of an overwhelming sensation of pleasure and has thus furnished us with a pattern for our search for happiness. What is more natural than that we should persist in looking for happiness along the path on which we first encountered it? The weak side of this technique of living is easy to see, otherwise no human being would have thought of abandoning this path to happiness for any other. It is that we are never so defenseless against suffering as when we love, never so helplessly unhappy as when we have lost our loved object or its love. 
but this does not dispose of the technique of living based on the value of love as a means to happiness. There is much more to be said about it. We may go on from here to consider the interesting case in which happiness in life is predominantly sought in the enjoyment of beauty, wherever beauty presents itself to our senses and our judgment, the beauty of human forms and gestures, of natural objects and landscapes, and of artistic and even scientific creations. This aesthetic attitude to the goal of life offers little protection against the threat of suffering, but it can compensate for a great deal. The enjoyment of beauty has a peculiar, mildly intoxicating quality of feeling. Beauty has no obvious use, nor is there any clear cultural necessity for it. Yet civilization could not do without it. The science of aesthetics investigates the conditions under which things are felt as beautiful, but it has been unable to give any explanation of the nature and origin of beauty, and, as usually happens, lack of success is concealed beneath a flood of resounding and empty words. Psychoanalysis, unfortunately, has scarcely anything to say about beauty either. All that seems certain is its derivation from the field of sexual feeling. The love of beauty seems a perfect example of an impulse inhibited in its aim. Beauty and attraction are originally attributes of the sexual object. It is worth remarking that the genitals themselves, the sight of which is always exciting, are nevertheless hardly ever judged to be beautiful. The quality of beauty seems instead to attach to certain secondary sexual characters. In spite of the incompleteness, I will venture on a few remarks as a conclusion to our inquiry. The program of becoming happy, which the pleasure principle imposes upon us, cannot be fulfilled. Yet we must not, indeed we cannot, give up our efforts to bring it nearer to fulfillment by some means or another. Very different paths may be taken in that direction, and we may give priority either to the positive aspect of the aim, that of gaining pleasure, or to its negative one, that of avoiding unpleasure. By none of these paths can we attain all that we desire. Happiness, in the reduced sense in which we recognize it as possible, is a problem of the economics of the individual's libido. There is no golden rule which applies to everyone. Every man must find out for himself in what particular fashion he can be saved. All kinds of different factors will operate to direct his choice. It is a question of how much real satisfaction he can expect to get from the external world, how far he is led to make himself independent of it, and finally, how much strength he feels he has for altering the world to suit his wishes. In this, his psychical constitution will play a decisive part, irrespectively of the external circumstances. The man who is predominantly erotic will give first preference to his emotional relationships to other people. The narcissistic man, who inclines to be self-sufficient, will seek his main satisfactions in his external mental processes. The man of action will never give up the external world on which he can try out his strength. As regards the second of these types, the nature of his talents and the amount of instinctual sublimation open to him will decide where he shall locate his interests. Any choice that is pushed to an extreme will be penalized by exposing the individual to the dangers which arise if a technique of living that has been chosen as an exclusive one should prove inadequate. Just as a cautious businessman avoids tying up all his capital in one concern, 
So perhaps worldly wisdom will advise us not to look for the whole of our satisfaction from a single aspiration. Its success is never certain, for that depends on the convergence of many factors, perhaps on none more than on the capacity of the psychical constitution to adapt its function to the environment and then to exploit that environment for a yield of pleasure. A person who is born with a specially unfavorable instinctual constitution and who has not properly undergone the transformation and rearrangement of his libidinal components, which is indispensable for later achievements, will find it hard to obtain happiness from his external situation, especially if he is faced with tasks of some difficulty. As a last technique of living, which will bring him, which will at least bring him substitutive satisfactions, he is offered that of a flight into neurotic illness, a flight which he usually accomplishes when he is still young. The man who sees his pursuit of happiness come to nothing in later years can still find consolation in the yield of pleasure of chronic intoxication, or he can embark on the desperate attempt at rebellion seen in a psychosis. Religion restricts this play of choice and adaptation, since it imposes equally on everyone its own path to the acquisition of happiness and protection from suffering. Its technique consists in depressing the value of life and distorting the picture of the real world in a delusional manner, which presupposes an intimidation of the intelligence. At this price, by forcibly fixing them in a state of psychical infantilism and by drawing them into a mass delusion, religion succeeds in sparing many people an individual neurosis, but hardly anything more. There are, as we have said, many paths which may lead to such happiness as it is attainable by men, but there is none which does so for certain. There is none which does so for certain. Even religion cannot keep its promise. If the believer finally sees himself obliged to speak of God's inscrutable decrees, he is admitting that all that is left to him as a last possible consolation and source of pleasure in his suffering is an unconditional submission. And if he is prepared for that, he could probably have spared himself the detour he has made. The End <laughs>